Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome, everybody, to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette from Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Center. It is a beautiful day in New York City. And this morning, I was scrolling Instagram. It's true. And on it, I saw a post that made me laugh out loud and think about my guest who is coming on today. And the quote was, dress like you're going somewhere better later. And joining me today, I have Nell Diamond, the CEO of the wildly successful lifestyle brand Hill House Home. And we are going to hear everything it took for her to get where she is after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, and I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today. Nell Diamond is the CEO of Hill House Home. And if you haven't heard of this company, I don't know where you've been living for the past couple of years. This is not only a social media star of a company, but the founder herself is someone that I admire as a businesswoman, as a mother, and as an incredible entrepreneur. Nell, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. What a treat. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. Now, I want to talk about the beginning of Nell Diamond because I have a six-year-old daughter who never comes into a room unless she's in a full ball gown. And (laughs) as we try to leave at any time during the day, she always has to run back to add things like a tiara or a pair of high heels to her ensemble as we leave the door. Is this who you were when you were a kid, Nell? Yes, it is who I am and <laughs> was and am continue to be. And I think I was so, you know, now that I'm a parent, I have three little kids. I think I realize what I didn't know then, which is how important it was that my parents supported that. My parents used to call it fly your freak flag. Like they wanted to support <laughs> my freak flag. And my particular brand of freak flag happened to be like looking pretty insane when I walked out the door, like kind of all my life. <laughs> How much tool can I find? How much tool can I find? Yes, yes. I exactly. love it. So you grew up in London. Yeah, so I was born in London. We moved around a lot. My parents are American. I was born in London. I spent a few years in Tokyo, but um, kind of majority of my years were in London. So I was born there and I graduated high school there. And then I moved to the U.S. um, for college. And when you were growing up in all of these different places, what is that like? I mean, I've spoken to some people who've had different childhoods where they grew up in different cities. Were you confident as a child? Were you someone who bounced around easily or was this something that you kind of learned in time? You know, I think it was all I ever knew. And so only in my adult life have I realized probably some of the attributes of my personality that are very unique to me are because of that moving around. Um, And, you know, even when we were like our longest stretch in London was probably like 12 or 13 years. And even in that 12 or 13 year stretch, I changed schools like three times. So even if we weren't moving country, we were moving schools, moving social groups and Culturally, I felt like I was also moving between different ways of being. You know, I went to an all-girls British school up until ninth grade, and then I switched to the American School in London, which is an international school. And there were cultural differences there. There were kind of curriculum differences. um, But I, I kind of remember, and I talk about this with my therapist a lot, I had this like persona that was very much like, all right, I my number one goal is I want to have somebody to sit with at lunch today, and I'm going to figure that out no matter what. And I still kind of have that mentality a little bit. And it's like, figure out who you are 
because people are so different around you, like there was no fitting in, right? Because there's so many different types of people that Mm -hmm. I was meeting. Um, And so I really had to figure out who I was to start with, which I think was really valuable. You know, it's funny. I grew up in Louisiana and I went to high school in Connecticut. And I remember my freshman year starting in that time. And I had a Southern accent. And I made some comment about going to see a baby, but I drawled the word baby, baby. And Mm -hmm. it was repeated back to me so many times. And I remember even at that early age thinking, oh, I need to smooth this out somehow so that that doesn't end up being every part of my day, just having things repeated back to me. And in a way, it kind of makes you a little bit of a cultural chameleon because you can move effortlessly through groups because you do understand the nuance of the people around you. And I wonder... As you moved into all of these different places, was there a place that you loved more? Like out of all the places that you lived, is there a place that you really identify with having grown up and feel like that's very much a part of who you are? Definitely London is, I feel like, my home. That's where I feel like I grew up. That's where my cultural references are. And it's interesting because I definitely have that chameleon thing. There's an amazing book called Third Culture Kids that they kind of handed out to like every American (laughs) expat (laughs) everywhere. And I really identified with the idea that, you know, you existed in this third culture that was not quite your home country and not quite the country you lived in, but in another sphere altogether. And I had that chameleon nature. I mean, the thing I always talk about with my friends is, you know, when I get in like a cab in London, I'm like suddenly kind of my A's sound a little different. And I'm like (laughs) purposely pronouncing things that are difficult to pronounce in an American accent because I want to show the cabbies that I like know the vibe. (laughs) I get (laughs) it here. (laughs) Yeah. But it's also funny because obviously I sound so American. um, And even that was kind of important to me, you know, being I was the only American at my all girls British school. And this was in the era of like, you know, bring it on and like all the big cheerleading movies. And like, I thought that was cool. I thought it was cool. I wanted, my husband says I had very short-term thinking. I didn't realize it'd be much better long-term to have a British accent, but short-term. <laughs> it's so true. Short-term, I was like, it's cool to have an American accent. Now I'm like, oh, <laughs> if it would have been better if I had, yeah. I'm actually like surprised. My mom, I told you this before, who does the bumper on this show is British and she's lived in America. Correct me if I'm wrong, mom, when you're listening to this for 50 years and still yeah. has the most British. British accent of anyone you've ever met in your entire life. And I feel like everyone goes to England and comes back with a British accent. So I would have thought that that would have been your identity when you came back. Well, your mom is exactly proof of why it doesn't change. It's so funny because my mom's biggest pet peeve, my mom grew up in Michigan, my dad grew up in Massachusetts, and like they kind of experienced a lot of this traveling for the first time with us. Like, you know, they weren't on planes until like their late 20s. And then suddenly they lived in Tokyo with three kids kind of under six. And my mom used to get so annoyed at the Americans that would move to London and have an accent like within the month. (laughs) Exactly. And she'd be like, babe, we're both from Michigan. Like I remember when Madonna had an accent, my mom was like, we are both from Michigan. I've lived here for like 15 years. Like no, the accent's not real. She's like, also my children who are living here full time don't have British accents. So I know, but it is a wonderful place. And Mm -hmm. I love England so much, having spent a lot of the time there with my mom and her sisters. So I understand that. So you were living in London and you loved fashion. You sort of talk about this all the time, but there was a story about Abercrombie and Fitch, which really caught my attention. Can you share that? Yeah, definitely. So that was my first job ever. So Abercrombie came to the UK when I was in high school at the American School, as I mentioned, and they opened on Savile Row, which is this very famous, you know, street in London that's known for its bespoke suits. Kind of the, you know, James Bond got his suits made there. It's it's an iconic street. 
And Abercrombie at the time, and I actually spoke about this yesterday with somebody, it's it's had a real resurgence, but Abercrombie at the time was an incredibly iconic brand and like the epitome of what America stood for in that yeah. like very Friday Night Lights era. Like the guys didn't wear shirts, right? Wasn't, am I oh, no. forgetting this? Yeah, at the door. Yeah. Totally. I yeah. And so I loved, <laughs> you know, what's interesting is it's not just that I loved Abercrombie, it's that I loved brands. So the other brand that I was absolutely obsessed with was Topshop. Such and, a great brand. You know, yeah, when I was in high school, they used to, you know, the phrase that like British teens used to say that Topshop Oxford Circus was Mecca. And mm-hmm. that was like where we would all do our pilgrimages to on Saturdays. And <laughs> it was just the most incredible, enthralling place. And they, this was the era when they had the Kate Moss for Topshop collaboration, which mm-hmm. was like, you think about all the collabs that happened now, this was in an era where that wasn't as common. And so the idea that you could walk around wearing these like Kate Moss approved gladiator sandals from Topshop that she was wearing at Glastonbury, it was like, you couldn't even breathe. It was the most exciting thing for a teenage girl. So I think what I really remember in my kind of teen years in London is just loving, loving figuring out like brand experiences and shopping and fashion and curating an aesthetic and how people like come up with their aesthetic and their taste. And it was always really, really fun for me, but never at any point in that period of time did I consider that it could be a career for me. You came to America to live in America for the first time, mm-hmm. right? At Princeton. Yeah. So what was that like having, you were American, but you'd never lived in America. What did that experience feel like? Yeah, it was funny. I mean, so I, the reason I switched to the American International School in London was because I wanted to go to university in the States. You know, I really felt like I didn't have that, that kind of like connection to the place that I was, you know, theoretically from. And there was something very mysterious and foreign about American (laughs) colleges. So I took the SAT, I took all the APs, and I landed at Princeton. I applied early decision to Princeton. And so I got in, it ended up being the only school I applied to. And I had my heart set on it. And one of the things I loved about it was that it felt a little more international and that it was so focused on undergrads. Princeton doesn't have a med school. It doesn't have a business school. It doesn't have a law school. So the experience is really about like the undergrad community. Mm-hmm. And that was super, super appealing to me. But, you know, when I came over, I think I was also keenly aware that there might be a little bit of culture shock, but nothing I hadn't experienced before. I think it's a unique brand of culture shock when you present as so much of that culture. So like walking on campus with my American accent, but with all my references being very different. And I remember it being like funny little things like, you know, I went to work out in the gym with like some of my new like freshman friends and they all wore Sophie shorts rolled over with like these big sorority t-shirts and like this very specific like brand of sneakers. I was wearing like one of them described it as I looked like I was going to a club. Uh, like I was like fully dressed. <laughs> you were ready for Studio 54. Yeah. Like, well, I was wearing like, like a, yeah, like adorable leggings. Like it was probably American <laughs> Apparel or something, but it was like yeah. adorable leggings. Like my hair looks cute. I was like, sorry for looking cute, guys. Yeah, exactly. um, but that was like, funny. It was like, you know, all these unspoken rules. Yeah. Like how did 10 of these girls who never knew each other before know how many times to roll over that exact same brand of shorts. Like, I was like, <laughs> what is going on here? And this was so before like social media, things. really, right? Yeah. This oh, yeah. Well, this I mean, we had hated. Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. We had Facebook, but yeah. Uh, they, weren't, uh, yeah. they weren't branding. Their, they weren't probably hashtagging everything at that point on Facebook, no. though. I love it. But you loved it. You enjoyed being there, and it was a good experience? It was amazing. Undergrad, I mean, I was thinking about, like, the schooling experience that I felt the most at home at. That was definitely it. I mean, it was just such an incredible, incredible group of people with so many desperate interests. And I think Princeton really does an amazing job of encouraging students to take the time in college 
to explore their wild, weird interests Mm -hmm. without focusing too much on like, okay, I have to major in econ if I want to go into finance, or I have to major in, you know, politics if I want to work in DC. So I was an English major and like your big project at Princeton is your senior thesis. You spend a year basically writing a book. I wrote a 120 page thesis and it was this really creative process that I had the freedom to totally explore alongside a professor. And that was just like amazing, like totally one of the most fun things I've ever done. And you wrote the thesis, I, I've i read about this. You wrote the thesis about the power of hair. Yeah. So I wrote, if a- you don't know now, <laughs> let me just stop for a second. The yeah. first thing I ever noticed about you was your hair, to be totally honest. I was at an event with a mutual friend of ours and I remember you walking in and just thinking, my God, how does she keep her hair looking so good? It's incredible. <laughs> it's such a mane. So was Thank that you. just your thing at that point and that it evolved into this paper? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm very hairy. Everyone's always like, oh my God, you have such like long hair. It's so amazing. I'm like, yeah, I also have to like shave my legs twice a day. <laughs> it's not all great. <laughs> yeah. Um, Pros and cons. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I've always had really long hair. I've actually tried to cut it, but it kind of grows back. Like it's, a weed, um, just keeps yeah, going. <laughs> it's like a weed. But no, so I based the thesis on this line in Paradise Lost, John Milton's Paradise Lost. It describes Eve and the fall of man, right? In the Garden of Eden. And the fall of man is described as Eve having all her tresses all disordered at Adam's feet, right? Mm. So I thought that was so fascinating. This is like, you know, theoretically, like the moment of the fall, right? Mm -hmm. Like this like very mythological, intense moment in like the canon. And they're talking about her hair. And I was like, this is interesting. And I've always watched and like seen these little kind of mentions of hair and how people talk about it. And I think hair and femininity are so like closely linked. And so I wanted to explore that. So I basically traced like references of female hair across a bunch of different kind of segments of history. And I focused on the pre-Raphaelite period in the Victorian era. I think it's no surprise this was the era, right, when industrial revolution and like women are kind of becoming more powerful and men are feeling a little shaky in their kind of very, very patriarchal positions for the first time in a long time. And throughout the cultural imagination, there are all these depictions of basically murderous women. So like women who kill. And there's this like very famous painting, La Belle Dame Sans Merci. And it's a woman on a horse and she's killing a man with, by wrapping her hair around his neck. Oh, so it's the ultimate of it all, right? The penultimate, yes. that the hair is being used yes. as the weapon. Oh, that's so yes. interesting. And then like you look back at Greek mythology, you look back at Medusa, like there are yeah. all these interesting moments where it's like a woman's identity and her head and her like covering, right? Which is also in the Talmud and the Bible, like what you're supposed to do with your hair is kind of like weaponized against her. So anyway, obviously like not not super relevant to the rest of the world, but I love being able to, to spend that time being creative. That's such an interesting thesis and a complete side note to this, but I don't know at what age you were when Felicity was on TV and she cut her hair. I don't know if you remember that. I don't. I never watched that show. Maybe it was not in the UK. I don't know. I think, well, I'm older than you are, but there was this incredible show called Felicity that was on and the lead, Carrie Russell, who's now, you know, sort of back in the public eye, but she was America's sweetheart. I mean, everybody watched this show. There weren't that many channels. There wasn't streaming. Everybody watched Felicity, who was my age. And I can't remember which season it was, but she had this beautiful curly hair and she cut it and the ratings dove. And when I read that about your paper, it wow. made me it was the thing that I immediately thought of about hair and femininity. And femininity for you is really a thread. And we can talk about this more as we go on and, and really the discussion about power and femininity and how those two things are interlinked. But mm-hmm. you didn't take this path you didn't take this path and then go straight into fashion. You went into no. finance. 
I sure did. <laughs> and it's interesting because, you know, you can't really look up Nell Diamond and not see your dad. There's like your mm-hmm. dad is definitely a part of your life in such a great way. It must be an interesting thing over the course of your life to have a father who's done so well because you clearly are a very intelligent person and you obviously have huge dreams as well. And I'm sure that there are people who are like, oh, she gets it because of this. But there's also the work ethic of someone who goes and tries to prove them all wrong, which I love that's what you've done. So you go to Deutsche Bank, which is not ultimately the end for you. So tell me about your black and Taylor suits, because I too donned those <laughs> around the auction stage. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I went into finance after Princeton. I think, you know, a little bit of it was my dad, right? My dad had had this tremendously successful career from nothing, from growing up with nothing in finance. And I love and adore and idolize my dad. And it's natural to want to kind of explore that career since I had seen him do it for so long. So there was that paired with this idea that I was this very serious, you know, kind of straight A, type A student. And that's what had gotten me to Princeton. And that's what I had always kind of gravitated towards was like doing the hardest thing, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to take like the hardest AP class and the most difficult extracurriculars. And I wanted this path and I wanted to get the best grade on all those things. And that was like very core and fundamental to who I was. But why do you think that is? Like, is that just who you are as a person? I will spend a lifetime trying to figure that out, but I think certainly much of it is inherent. I've had many discussions with my parents about this, like in my adult life, and my parents certainly never put this like outsized pressure on us, on me or my brothers. I think a lot of it was pressure I put on myself. I think probably there's so much more at play there. I gravitated towards these things that had like structure mm-hmm. and like clear markers of success. And I think this is a real thing in college and career offices, right? Like the banking and consulting kind kind of ladder is such that, you know, by the end of your junior year, right, you spend like all of your junior year, like trying to get this big internship, Mm -hmm. then you get the internship. And then after the internship, you find out on the last day of your internship, if you got the full-time offer. And it's like all these clear paths that are kind of like getting into college and getting the good grades and those things. And so for me, it was almost like, you know, I followed the path. I did all the right things. I showed up, you know, I worked so hard at that internship. I got the job and I couldn't turn it down. And it was partly that and partly like, I know that I will always wonder if I should have gone into finance if I don't at least try it. So I ended up trying it and I don't regret it, but it is definitely funny how that decision I felt like was almost made for me as opposed to kind of made super eyes open. And I did love reading about the Black Antiller suit because I wore the same thing on stage, honestly, for the longest time, for 10 years, I would always gravitate towards the Black. And I feel like confidence for me always came when I started realizing that if I dressed the part, if I dressed the way I wanted to feel as opposed to how everyone else thought I should look, it made me feel more confident in many ways, yeah. like putting on color, putting on earrings, putting on heels. So you're sitting at your desk at Deutsche Bank in your black and Taylor suit. And is this when you think of Hill House Home? Yes. And, and a note on the suits. It's really funny because I've been thinking recently, you know, in high school, in college, and all of those periods, like I never felt like I had to dampen myself to like be the best student, be the best, you know, person, you know, be who I was basically. Mm -hmm. Like I felt like I could walk 
into, you know, the hardest math class or the the most intense like debate or whatever presentation. And I could be fully me and that like the teachers would support me, the school would support me, like my success would be there. Somehow when I got into the working world, that totally shifted. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of this has to do with like my own insecurities and my own hangups, you know, one of which being when I started working at Deutsche Bank, my dad was the CEO of another bank. And I knew everybody knew that. And I really felt like I wanted to prove to people like, I am smart and I can do this on my own. Yeah. And so I think maybe that was a factor. Maybe there were other things that were a factor. But so because of that, I definitely felt like I had to look like super professional all the yeah. time. And to me, that meant, you know, taking off the cat eye eyeliner, taking off some of the jewelry, lower heels, like not the like outfits that I wanted to wear. So I'd wear these like ill-fitting suits. And the effect that that had on my mental health was so tremendous that it was actually embarrassing for me. I was embarrassed by how much I cared. Now I'm like, no, this is who I am. (laughs) I'm like proud that I get, you know, really depressed when I'm not wearing something cute. But at that stage, I think, you know, I was so young and it really depressed me. I felt like I was wearing a costume and hiding who I was. And it, it made it difficult to do my job because I was so affected by it. I had Aya Kanai on here and we talked about confidence and how it ebbs and flows over time and that you can feel it an all-time high and then you can literally lose it overnight. And it's interesting that fashion for that is a little bit of your confidence too. I feel that way too, you know, and I know what you mean because you're trying to fit in, but you're like, I don't really want to fit in. So how did you end up leaving? What did that conversation look like even internally? Were you sort of like, this is what I should be doing, but I want to do something else or Where did you go from there, those feelings? Yeah, I mean, I knew in my heart, I remember the night before I started the full-time role, we were in London and I remember like putting out all my outfits and I was going to training the next day and just crying, just being like so emotional about starting it and thinking about, I remember there was like some guy who was retiring on like one of the desks that I was working on and I was panicking, being like, oh my God, I'm going to have to do this every day for the next like 50 years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Like every Monday to Friday, this is what I have to do. Yeah. And that existential dread like creeps up with you. And and now that I am in a job I love, I know that that's not normal to feel that way, to make it make you feel so upset. Um, and so I think I knew while I was there and I found bright spots, right? Like I loved some of the people I worked with. I loved like learning how to be an employee, those kinds of things. But I think the gradual buildup of feeling this like separation between who I am and what I'm doing and how I can like present myself was too big. And so I think it happened gradually, right? I started to think through, my dad always said, like, you can't leave a job unless you have another job lined up. <laughs> <And> that's certainly <laughs> true. And so I, I knew that. And I was kind of like thinking through all these things of like, what are my other options? What are other careers? And I started spending a lot of time tapping into what my friends and so I worked on a rates trading desk and that's in the fixed income division of the business. So not dealing with like kind of stocks and the equity markets. Mm -hmm. And I had friends who worked in equity research and the equity research at Deutsche Bank was amazing. And they would put out these reports on like big retail companies. And I remember kind of like, you know, in a down hour, like reading through some of these reports on big retail companies and getting a little pang of like, oh wait, this this is super interesting. Yeah. Like actually, like maybe I could go work at one of these companies. Yeah. And then eventually that kind of evolved into maybe I have an interesting idea for one of these companies and maybe I want to explore that a little bit. 
when I was sitting at my desk at Deutsche Bank, I didn't have this like aha moment Mm -hmm. of like, I want to start Hill House, but I did have a sense of what my next step would be. And that was to apply to business school. So kind of like I did with undergrad, I applied to only one school. I applied to the <laughs> Yale School of Management. Um, I like the all-in strategy. You're like, it's it's here or nowhere. Back to the it's back to the trading. So desk. annoying. I'm so impulsive. I did it with marriage too. I was like, this guy, <laughs> this guy's gonna be great. He's and nice. I married Runs him. Fast. <laughs> I'll marry yeah. Teddy. <laughs> yeah, I'll take him. So yeah, and then I applied to Yale and the rest was history. That makes it sound so Instagram easy, but I highly <laughs> doubt that that was actually history. So it was your second year at Yale where this all really crystallized? Yeah, one of the reasons I chose Yale was because I knew, so the School of Management at Yale is tiny. It was even tinier when I was there. Very like non-traditional business school. Like a lot of these business schools have like massive classes. And I knew that they were really focused on their entrepreneurship program. And so I had that in the back of my mind, like, okay, amazing. Like I could, you know, kind of toy with this entrepreneurship thing, but I was not sold on doing it. I'm mm-hmm. a very risk averse person. I was coming from that like strategic ladder situation. <laughs> You're like, what and is so the I, next step here? What's the next step? Exactly. And I love the idea that an entrepreneurship program might give structure to the craziness of starting a business. Mm-hmm. So I told myself I would spend the first year at Yale just, you know, taking the core classes and understanding all of that. And that I would get an internship that summer in like a retailer fashion business. And so I did that. I ended up working at LVMH for the Louis Vuitton US brand, mm. which was iconic and incredible. Like what a a huge gift to be able to see a little bit inside how, you know, one of the best conglomerates in the world works. But I think part of that internship process, I was thinking like, maybe I'll convince myself not to do entrepreneurship. Maybe I'll... Maybe this will be what I need to yeah, set me back on yeah. my path. Yeah. Scratch the edge. Yeah. But it didn't. It didn't. Even though I loved it, I knew I was not going to get this idea out of my head. So when I went into the second year at Yale of business school, I kind of pencils down, like really started in earnest working on the idea for Hill House. And where did the name Hill House come from? Came from a few things in my life. So one is that the Yale School of Management is on Hill House Avenue in New Haven. And actually Mark Twain once called it the most beautiful street in America, which I always loved. And it really is gorgeous. And then my brother went to a school called Hill House in London too. And I just kept seeing the name like pop up in a million different places. Like a sign. It was actually Teddy's idea, my husband's idea, Hill House. I don't know if I've ever told anyone that before. He was like, oh yeah, like Hill House home. Like it sounds so symmetrical. And he said it and I was like, oh my God, I love it. Oh, that's proud then. Well, aren't you glad you married him? There you go. Yeah. Yet another reason, a branding yeah. expert. Who knew? <laughs> so you graduate from the Yale School of Management. What is the first thing you do to start Hill House Home? Because you now have a name and you have the business plan written or some semblance of what you think it might look like. And what year is this? 26. Oh, so so 2015, I graduated in okay. you know June. And then I launched the business January 2016, like okay. to the customers. So basically I graduated and then between graduation and launch, I did all the things that you need to do to like actually get the product in a warehouse. So signed a contract with a warehouse, like worked with a web developer, set up the website. While I was in school, I think I like trademarked the name, set up an LLC, did some like legal work and then business planning. But then when I graduated, I started like actually like doubling down and, you know, paid for rent on an office, like warehouse, all those things. Did you find your passion then? Were you feeling confident about what you're doing or as you're stepping out of business school, which is obviously a structured environment and you've talked about liking the structure and not being a person who loves risk. As you're stepping out of the door of business school, you're like, what have I done? Are you just feeling completely inspired and ready to go? You know, it's so funny. Nobody's ever asked me that before. And so I'm not sure I've ever answered it. I think 
immediately I was so energized by it. Yeah. I don't think I thought like, oh, this is going to succeed, but I know that I loved working on it. Like I remember just like going, I was at a co-working space in like Flatiron and I remember just being like so excited to go into my little like cubicle and like check off my list and like think of all these things. And I would like walk from our apartment in the West Village to Flatiron. And I'd be like jamming to these playlists, thinking through like Instagram captions for the business. And I was just really energized by it. And I think that that was like such a cool feeling to be just like, I don't think I'll ever get over the idea of like zero to one of thinking of a product in your mind and then like it's on somebody's body or on their bed or in their house. It's, It's really cool. When you first started Hill House Home, it was bedding right? It was bedding. Yeah, just home products. Is it funny to think back now how it started? I remember walking by the Bleecker Street store and there was this beautiful flower display outside. Yeah. (laughs) And I just remember thinking, oh, this is so pretty. I'm such a print and color and floral person that everything about it appealed to that sensibility to me. So at that point, it was just bedding, right? It was just bedding. Yeah. I've always really loved home products. And also I joke about this with my husband all the time. I like to start with the hardest thing first. And selling a rectangle of like cotton on the internet (laughs) is incredibly difficult. I think I knew at the beginning, you know, I wanted to start very low and slow. Mm -hmm. I wasn't like, you know, this is 2016. So there were some like big D2C businesses launching at this time. And I think like one of the best things I did early on was like basically like mute any account that was like making me feel anxious and like, oh my God, they've got all this venture funding and I should do that and I should do this because that was never going to be our game. I really wanted to spend time growing the business and like find out what people wanted as opposed to coming in thinking like, oh, I know exactly what they want and I know exactly what the next four years are going to entail. Yeah, We always say like, we left room for Jesus and we still try to do that as much as possible. And Jesus is really like the customers, right? Like we yeah. left room for customers to tell us kind of what they wanted from us. Yeah. But what we were very clear on, right, was that aesthetic, mm-hmm. that like visual, you know, world that we were bringing customers into. And that was really exemplified by that Bleecker Street store. And that's actually one of the reasons I signed that lease. So Bleecker Street obviously has like a storied history in New York retail. It was where the first Marc Jacobs store was. Mm -hmm. It's just a gorgeous picturesque street. And I live in the West Village. And this little tiny jewel box of a store came on the market at a time when almost every store in Bleecker was like closed down. The, The rent was so good. And I had like, you know, two employees and we really couldn't afford it. We had not taken on any funding. And I said, I'm gonna work there. We're gonna like rotate in and out, basically like different team members taking shifts. And this is going to be our like little test kitchen. It's gonna be where we test products. It's gonna be where I like listen to customers. You know, nobody knew that I was attached to the business. So I could kind of like sit there and listen to people talk about the product. And I'm also going to use it as an opportunity to allow people into the visual world of Hill House, which was very specific, right? It was very print focused, very dreamy, very feminine, all about like kind of joy and adventure and play. And that was one of the best decisions we've ever made is to make it a real life brand, probably way before we should have. (laughs) When did you have Henry, your first son? Because this all kind of happened at the same time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I found out I was pregnant with my son, Henry, um, about a week or two after I launched the business in 2016, January, 2016. And, you know, it was also like the same day that my only employee at that point quit. It was like the only person. (laughs) Yeah, so it was pretty dark. And I was, you know, I was married, happily married, but 
it was still a surprise. I wasn't kind of planning on getting pregnant. I felt very young. I was 27, which, you know, in New York is like being 13 and pregnant. <laughs> sort of like, what and happened? So it, <laughs> yeah, it felt crazy to me. It yeah. felt crazy to me. And I felt my friends were like not even close to marriage, let alone like close to thinking about families. Yeah. And also having started a business and losing an employee, like I was the only person working at Hill House for the next six months of my pregnancy. And it was very challenging humbling, but I think like a great thing for me in the scheme of things. And then he was born, obviously, nine months later in October. And one thing that was really interesting in your story, and I remember even seeing this on social because you are so good at social and such an, a natural person on social media, was you talk a lot about the anxiety after you had your son and postpartum anxiety. And yeah. that openness, it was interesting because you have this beautifully created world of Hill House Home and everything is so perfect and lovely. And then you have this very dark conversation about what's happening in your life that so many people can relate to because so many people have been through it and they don't expect it. And I think in many ways, it really opened up your business to a lot of different ways of seeing you as a person, not only as an entrepreneur, but as someone who is very much human, willing to tell your story, building this brand and allowing yourself to be imperfect in this perfect world in many ways. And I know from many people who I had, had told where you were coming on the podcast have said that to me, that they were going through particularly dark times in their own childbearing experiences, child rearing experiences, and seeing that was very helpful to them. Have you continued doing that since, am I right? Wow, that's so nice to hear. Yeah, definitely. It was never, I wish I could say it was like all this like, you know, plan to help people and all of these things. I think I'm definitely like the type of person that sharing helps take some of the burden out of my brain. Yeah. And it really helps me. So sharing about like particularly tough things that I've gone through, whether it's, you know, postpartum anxiety or struggles with my mom's health or, you know, whatever, just having a bad day. I think like putting it out into the universe is very helpful for me. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's incredible if it, you know, helps another person too to know that that's going on behind what might look like a kind of internet-y perfect life. Yeah. And I definitely think it, in many ways, as we moved into the COVID era, is something that we all saw more of. But I definitely remember those early days of seeing those posts and, and hearing you talk about it and thinking it was refreshing to see someone be so open about something that a lot of people try to hide and how it, that kind of allowance allows other people to share as well and make them feel like they're part of your community. So you've had success, obviously, with the betting. COVID hits. No one expected that, obviously. But that was really when Hill House Home became a phenomenon with the nap dress. And the nap dress you had, right, in 2019, it wasn't that you created yep. it during, but talk to me about that overnight success, although, of course, overnight success is never really overnight, as we know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, our business grew tremendously during COVID, but I think the background that's so you know, important is that, so this product that, you know, we're most known for, which is the nap dress, we first started working on that product in 2018. And it was really out of a kind of like personal need. I'm a dress person. I find pants really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I wanted like really cute, easy, breezy cotton dresses that like, I felt like I could, you know, wear getting my toddler breakfast, but also like wear to a meeting, wear out to dinner, like you know, it could last me through kind of a 16 hour day and that I would still feel comfortable, but still feel really cute in it. Because at this point I was feeling a little more confident in the fact that like, if I feel cute, I'm a better person to be around, all around. <laughs> so that's very important to me, but I think I never 
you know, believed that, you know, this is going to be this huge hit and this is going to be the hero product that like everybody's obsessed with. I think I wanted to get it out into the universe with no expectations. And so we first started releasing this product actually in the Bleecker Street store. We like hung our first nap dress and it was very clear from the first kind of couple times that we sold them that this was a special product. So I could Mm -hmm. tell pretty early on, like, this is like actually something that might be, you know, bigger than us. Why? What was it? Was it the reaction? Was it that they were flying off the shelf? So the big thing for me was the vast array of people who looked amazing in it. And so it wasn't just like body size. It was also like aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. Like I had like a friend who was like the kind of friend who always wore jeans and like Doc Martens and a leather jacket. And like she'd put one on and look iconic. And then I had a friend who, you know, was super girly and like always wore like really frilly things. And she looked iconic in it. You know, my grandma looked amazing in it. And then like my little cousin looked amazing in it. And that was kind of like an aha moment for me to be like, wait, I think there's something special in not only this like category of dress, which is a nap dress, but also this specific kind of product. And, you know, I think the thing that's important to say here, like we never invented smocking, right? Like smocking is what makes our nap dresses comfortable. Mm -hmm. My grandmother used to wear smock dresses in like, you know, 1950, right? I'm from Louisiana. It's all we wear. Like, like, I don't think I was in anything until I was 10 years old, except for a smock dress. Thanks, mom. Yeah, 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 same. I mean, I grew up in England, it's like all smock dresses. Like, and then Juicy Couture when I was in high school, like. Those smock dresses were like the best. So I think that's always really important to say, like, you know, we definitely don't think we invented smocking in any way. But I think it was this combination of like comfort with our smocking, right? And like the specific tension is so funny. We were like crazy about the specific tension because we want it to be tight enough that you feel held in and you like don't have to wear a bra if you don't want to. But we also don't want it to be so loose that it like it wears out and you can't can't wash it. And I'm wearing one now and all of those things are true. I may not have a bra on. Sorry, Joe. That's the truth. I I don't need it. I actually don't need one anyway, but now you know. Uh, All those things are true. Good, good. Yeah. But then also like the price point and the patterns and the way that we were styling them and the fit and all of those things, it it was just clear that we had kind of caught, you know, a nerve with this product. And so, you know, in 2019, we started selling them in drops accidentally, basically, because we would sell out of them. People kept saying like, you need to tell us when new ones are going up because we need to put it in our calendar. Interesting. And I never wanted to be like a hypey kind of like Supreme-esque brand. Like, that's amazing for them, but I just didn't, that wasn't what I thought we were good at. And we kind of stumbled into it out of necessity. So we started having these drops and December, 2019, or maybe November, 2019, we had the first drop that I was like, oh my gosh, our entire business has changed. Like this is something. And that was, yeah, tartan nap dresses. Yeah. Um, and those sold out so quickly. It was like, we were like panicking about like how long we were going to have this inventory stuck in our warehouse and it sold out within like three minutes. And we were like, oh my gosh, like this is something crazy. And then COVID hit. So when COVID hit, we still didn't think like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I mean, if you remember what it was like in, you know, March 2020 in New York City, Nico, who's our COO and I, we were literally sitting, we both had young kids, like we were sitting in our bathrooms on our computers, like going through our P&L statement being like, this is the day we're going to have to shut the business. Like we're going to have to close it down if, you know, we stop getting sales and our warehouse closes and all these things. And the exact opposite happened. Like our business tripled year over year, every year for the next like four years. Like it was crazy. At the beginning of COVID, was it bedding that was selling and then it morphed into the nap dress or was it always the nap dress that was sort of propelling By the time COVID started, fashion was bigger. Fashion Fashion was was already bigger, but then it just became, now it's 90. 
92, 93% of the business. Yeah. So I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was like 50 or 60 when COVID started, but then it just, it went crazy. I remember the nap dress trickling into my Zoom calls for sure. There were some very bleak things going on during COVID, as you can remember, like people before they realized about how to make backdrops blurred or anything like that. <laughs> there would be like, especially in New York, I mean, you know, small apartments. And I remember this one person in particular, there was a cat always wandering around. And then one day she got her nap dress and it was like nap dress nation on her Zoom for the rest of COVID. I mean, I think yeah. she had five or six of them and she just rotated them. She always looked so put together. At some point, she was able to blur the background too and the whole effect was magic. <laughs> I remember thinking, yes. I wish I could run into Nell and tell her that, but of course, like a, you can't run into anyone. <laughs> so into anyone, it was yeah. amazing and it's amazing to see them. I mean, I'm wearing one now, but you know, we were uh, in Spain a couple of weeks ago and I saw them all over Spain and it's just so funny to see a dress from, that's been created by someone you know out in the universe. It's an impressive it's thing crazy. for sure. I'll never get over it. I don't think I'll ever like lose that like, oh my gosh, when I see it in public on somebody I don't know. It's exciting. It's really exciting. So you've added two more children to the mix mm -hmm. since then, twins. What's it like being a mom of three, two of those twins and running a very successful company? You know, an adventure. I found out I was <laughs> pregnant with twins March second, I guess, 2020. So, and then oh, New York shut down. <laughs> Your timing in the pregnancies so, is really something to behold. Yes, it is. I like, I like to do pregnancies around like massive brand events. So it was crazy. <laughs> but I think the most incredible gift of it all is that our team, in particular, our executive team at Hill House has been going through the same thing. So my COO, Nico, who I mentioned, she's had three little kids over the same period. She and I were pregnant at the same time during COVID. You know, our business is all women, right? And it's been such a like warm, welcoming hug to be around people who understand what it's like to have that perspective, like kind of constantly in your mind. Mm -hmm. And then also I think it's been perspective is my like keyword around having kids. Like the, one of the greatest gifts that having children has given me is the gift of perspective and realizing yeah. that like no matter how big a problem at work is, no matter how you know bad a mood I'm in today, like at the end of the day, like I'm here to like support these, you know, tiny growing humans yeah. and that perspective and like my family is at the end of the day, what really matters. And that can help take the sting off, especially in entrepreneurship, because it can feel like everything is the most important thing ever. And it's a crisis and you've got to fix it. And yeah. so having that perspective has been very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're running to a big meeting and then one of your children spits up on you and you're like, oh my God, of course, like this yeah. just, it, it all puts it in perspective. It really does. I think it's good also to be like humbled constantly. Yes. Like that's, and entrepreneurship humbles you constantly and then motherhood humbles you constantly. It's like anytime I feel like a little too big for my britches and I'm like, things are going great. One of my kids like, you know, tells me that I have to do something like crazy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was walking good. out for an auction this spring, you know, and I'm in full hair and makeup. You know, I've spent 20 minutes, which is my allotted time of putting on makeup and getting my hair ready before I go on stage, sadly, just trying to get the kids in bed or as close to bed as possible. And I was walking out of the door and my six-year-old looked at me and I think she was upset because she wanted me to stay and she did not want me to go out. And she goes, that dress is very ugly. <laughs> hey, thanks. I'm going to go make some money for a nonprofit right now with oh that comment God. in mind, sweetheart. And it's just like, it just made me laugh so hard because A, that's just who she is. But B, that's also motherhood. You take the good with the bad for sure. Yeah. So I am so excited to see what Hill House Home comes up with next. But where can we find you? What can we do to keep watching? And what can we expect from Hill House Home? Well, I'm very excited about brick and mortar right now. We have a few different stores. We have one right around the corner from where you are right oh, now in Rockefeller Center. <laughs> I know it well. 
Joe yeah. knows it too. He mentioned it to me before we started the oh, podcast. Good. So yeah. we're fans. We love that store. We love Rockefeller Center is like the heart of New York and we are so excited to be there. So we're in Rockefeller Center. That's our New York flagship. We have a store in Nantucket Island, which is where I am right now. We have one in Palm Beach and then we'll have two openings in the next year, which is super exciting. One of them is in Charleston, which oh, is hopefully fantastic. opening Great early town. fall. Great yeah, town. so I'm excited about that. So you can find us at those stores. You can find us at hillhousehome.com. And then you can follow us on Instagram and all those other things. It's just at Hill House. And then I'm at Nellie Diamond. You can find me there too. Well, what a fun conversation this has been. Nell, thank you so much for taking the time to be here, especially on your summer vacation. Although I'm sure with your business and the kids, there's very little downtime for you right now. Oh yeah, normal work day. (laughs) I want to leave our listeners with one last question, just because we're talking about clothes and we've talked about confidence. What piece of clothing do you wear to make you feel the most confident? Is there one piece that you go back to? Nell, you can answer that. And then I want our listeners to answer that as well. Right now for me, it's my Ophelia dress from Hill House. That's the dress. That's like my power suit. That's like my like, you know, power pants suit. Like I feel super confident in that. Sometimes I call it a panel dress internally. Like (laughs) there's no particular panel I'm going on. Nobody's inviting me on a panel right now, but like that's what I would wear at any time. It's kind of like nap dress is like at any time I'm available for a nap. The panel dress is like (laughs) I'm available if you'd like me to speak. That's how I started out. Dress like you're going somewhere better later, right? Yeah. Well, this has been such a pleasure. I want to thank you again, Nell. I want to thank Joe, my incredible producer, who I totally shocked today. And a huge (laughs) thank you to Rockefeller Center. Nell, you said it best. It really is the heart of New York. So thank you for hosting us here and making this happen. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. And I can't wait for you to tune in again next week. Have a great one. 